Okay, Psalm 19.7, just for a text verse. Gave you a little time to catch up, so you're all caught up. Doing and living theology, welcome to it. It's a tuition-free theology class. This is the fifth lesson, lecture, message, sermon, whatever you want to call it. I just call it five. Cognitional theory tonight. It's going to be a little different from what you usually hear from the pulpit here. Cognitional theory. Don't be intimidated by... Fancy words, going to make some things. In fact, tonight I'm going to, I found a method that I find is helpful to myself, and that is to teach by oversimplification. There's also a way to teach by overcomplicating something, and we'll be doing that too, but this is, I'm going to oversimplify a couple of things. Cognitional theory, and I'm going to call it naive realism versus critical Realism, very important for the interpretation of the word, very important for doing theology on the way to living theology by an imitation, a graced imitation of God. Psalm 19.7 is just a reference verse. I'm going to let you figure out why it's pertinent to tonight's teaching. And like I said, you might find it a little different, but let's take a couple moments preparation. Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes, that we may realize that we are not only fearfully and wonderfully made anatomically, but that you've also made us in an interior design that's designed to seek you. And we thank you for this. And we pray that you'll grant us understanding tonight through your word so that we may truly do theology and live it by a graced imitation of you, Father, and your love. We ask this in the name of our Savior and your eternal Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 19.7, I've tweaked it a little bit. My translation reads like this, The teaching of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making the naive Wise. What is cognitional theory as espoused by Bernard Lonergan? And that is his theory. According to Lonergan, there's a standard interior method by which human beings can come to truly and really acknowledge the real and the true. This normative method, which we could call standard or normative begins with sensate experience. And that means the experience of hearing or seeing, for example. It is the perception of the senses. And I want you to understand, and I want to give a simple illustration. To me, it was vivid as I imagined it. I don't know how vivid it will be to you, but while walking in the woods on a densely cloudy night. The clouds part for a half hour or so, and you see through the trees a brilliant crescent-shaped light. You say, what is it? You answer, purely based on your sensate or sensitive experience, it's the moon. Your senses, specifically your sight or eyesight, has perceived something and you've asked what the Latin would construe as quidsit. Simple question. What is it? Quidsit. Q-U-I-D-S-I-T. What is it? And you've answered with a fair amount of certitude. 
It's the moon. But you feel a little disoriented because you've taken that walk a few times before. Seeing the moon in that position seemed a little odd. You instinctively note that the moon should not be in that place or that position. As you look around and up slightly, you see a bright crescent in the sky above and behind you. You say, what is it? You answer, based on your sense perception of sight, that's the moon. If you then question your original perception and ask, what was that original perception? Was it correct? That's the Latin question that we ask. Was it really the moon that I saw at first? Ansit. So there's two questions. One is a question for intelligence. Some of you have heard this before, but in a little different light tonight. Quidsit. Ansit. A naive realist will ask, what is it? And on the base of his basis of sight or hearing, answer and then leave it. Never asks, on sit. Is it really so? The answer in your interior being is simply no. It wasn't the moon. You turn aside to investigate and you keep progressing toward that original image. You eventually make out in the vague light an A-frame house built on a rise with a huge picture window. The crescent moon is reflected in the picture window. You say, well, that's not the moon. It's a reflection of the moon. It's a very good facsimile to be sure, but it's not the real moon. It's not the moon, truly though it's a pretty good likeness. This illustrates, by deliberate oversimplification, the principle that is normative, or we could say standard, in the interiority of a human being. One perceives and then asks, what is it? Quits it. In this case, perception is not reality. I saw an advertisement for a man who's doing a series of lectures on what he calls insights. He has his first insight is perception is reality. And that's not an insight. Well, it's an insight, but it's an oversight of true insight. It's light that's really darkness. That's not the case. That's in fact, that's pretty much the statement of what we would call naive realism. If perception was reality, then that reflection in the A-frame's picture window would have been the moon. So, in this case, you perceive and ask, onset, is that really the moon? It's followed by, wait then, is that really the moon onset as you answer and take the trouble to go off the beaten track? And this is a kind of a metaphor. If you take the trouble to go off the beaten track and you go through a thicket or two, take the trouble to move through a thicket. And if you've ever been out in the woods or hunting or taking pictures, and you went through a thicket, you find yourself cut up pretty much by the time you get through it. Thorns and thistles and everything else, your face gets a little torn up and your clothes and you have thorns. But you took the trouble. As you take the trouble to go off the beaten track, you work your way laboriously through a thicket or two in the night. You approach the A-frame on a rise, it becomes much clearer to you that what you saw was a reflection of the moon. You have amassed more evidence and have come to a virtually unconditioned conclusion, one that can't really be contested. You've made a judgment that your first perception was wrong. The moon wasn't in front of you and slightly above you. It was behind you and presumably about 247,000 miles away. According to scientific measurements that you might have recalled from elementary school, 
The answer to the question onset is, no, my first perception, it was not the moon. It was a reflection of the moon, but a pretty accurate one. Now, again, this is a deliberate oversimplification of the method that is normative to human beings. Human beings that are made in the image of the triune God. It is an interior mechanism by which we get at the truth. Pilate said what is truth, but he didn't follow up on it. If he had, you'd realize that he was asking the question of truth personified. Naive realism requires no steady attentiveness. We hear something, we see something, we conclude initially what it is. Naive realism concludes that a thing is what I perceive it to be, and that's it. Reality to the naive realist is what he sees. He sees, and by seeing, he concludes that he knows. That's naive realism and nuce, which is Latin for in a nutshell. He sees, and by seeing, he concludes that he knows. To him, the perception of the reality is the reality. He may confidently say to a Christian friend, for example, who has told him of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I'll believe it when I see it. Or, I won't believe it unless and until I see it. Like Thomas of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, your friend is a naive realist. So is Thomas. The naive realist would have been dead wrong to conclude that he saw the moon that night when he saw it reflected through the window of an A-frame on a rise. He would say, that's the moon, I saw it, and I know it to be the moon. That settles it. He walked on, perhaps preoccupied with many anxious cares, and assumed that he saw the crescent moon as the clouds broke for a while on an otherwise densely cloudy and gloomy night. He may later tell a friend, I saw the beautiful crescent moon tonight. His Christian friend, again, happens to be a Christian, would have the right to say, how do you know you saw the moon. If this Christian friend knew about the A-frame house and if he had the same vision of the reflection of the moon earlier on the same night or some other night, he might even say, let's take a walk tonight. Let's see if he really saw the moon. The naive realist stops at his answer to the internal quits it. What is it? The naive realist is often wrong, but don't tell him that. Or don't tell her that. Some of you are thinking of a her. <laughs> don't tell her that. He knows what he saw, and that's that. There is a sound, rational basis in the jurisprudence of the Mosaic law. You know what it says? Unless there's two or three witnesses, two or three eyewitnesses to a capital crime, you can't convict the person. And that's a tacit denial in the Mosaic law of the reliability of a single eyewitness. In the night in question, did you actually see the moon? Yes, I did. Well, we have an investigator that went up the night after and saw the moon reflected in the window of an A-frame. Were you looking in this direction? 
Yes, I was. That wasn't the moon. So red face, the person goes home. See, it's interesting that God had 500 witnesses at one time to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that you might have a little more certainty there. It's not really reasonable to believe a single eyewitness, not a single eyewitness. It's not really reasonable to automatically disbelieve him either, but you might want to question him a little bit. It becomes more reasonable when two or three eyewitnesses testify to the same thing from different angles. It becomes even more when there's 12 or when there are 500. So the denial of the reliability of a single eyewitness is also a tacit denial of the reliability of naive realism. The naive realist needs an intellectual conversion. He doesn't just need to change his mind about what he saw. Listen carefully to this because this is how we get to do theology. He doesn't just need to change his mind about what he saw. He needs to change his whole way of thinking and perceiving and questioning and answering. He needs to put away infantile picture thinking. And the assumption that perception is reality. He needs to, in the words of Jean Piaget, the famous child psychologist who's still worth reading, Piaget, P-I-A-G-E-T, Jean Piaget. He needs to go beyond the childish world of immediacy, where immediate perception is reality into a world mediated by meaning. We'll explain that more as we go, perhaps. In the words of the Apostle Paul, to make it a little more Bible-based, and all of this really is Bible-based, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things naive realism is thinking as a child not in terms of humility but in terms of infantile thinking reasoning as a child the naive realist needs a change of method so if we keep this comparison of child development into adulthood that Paul selected in 1 Corinthians 13 11 we could say The naive realist needs to grow up. The naive realist concludes short of investigation. Short of asking on sit. Wait, is that really the moon? I've done this recently and gotten some results that are spectacular to me. Do the parables really teach this, as we've been taught traditionally? Or do they teach something all about Christ and him crucified? Coming up, maybe even as soon as we get back to the doctrine of justification. Is there a problem between Paul's obvious vision of universal salvation, obvious, and the so-called judgment texts that are found within the parables of the synoptic gospels. Is there contradiction there? Or is something, has something intervened that mediates the meaning of those parables to reveal them all in a universal salvific light? We'll see that. So you see, some of this stuff is Seems basic and maybe oversimplified, but it's going somewhere. The naive realist concludes short of investigation, short of asking onset. Wait, is that really the moon? I just saw the moon. Oh, I'm going to worry about my bills now, and I'm going. Uh, 
How am I going to invest my money? Who's going to win the next presidential election? Now, upon further investigation, the naive realist may have discovered that he saw a reflection, a beautiful and a bright one, to be sure, but just a reflection. It is wrong to say that Jesus Christ is just a reflection of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He isn't the reflection of God's glory. He's the radiance of it. See, you're getting some things out of this, maybe. I always pray that you would. Upon further investigation, he could have been treated to a view of the real moon and to the wonder of the moon being reflected in a window in the woods. Without trying to be insulting to this guy, we would have to say that naive realism isn't really attentive. It's not really intelligent. Nor is it reasonable. We might even suggest that naive realism isn't very responsible. Neither is an infant. The naive realist may sing, say things like this. This gets it more into your conversational everyday stuff. Well, the science on the matter is fixed. I always look at Tony for this one. Got to read his articles in the Washington Times. They get better and better and better. The science on the matter is already fixed. Climate change is an existential threat. He concludes this, and he believes this to be true because he heard a politician say it or a scientist say it on TV. Or he might have seen a picture on Nat Geo of a polar bear stranded on a melting ice cap, which obviously proves that climate change is an existential threat, meaning it threatens our very existence as a planet. The scientists in it's fixed. I saw a polar bear on a melting ice cap. Or how he saw it in a documentary. No, documentaries are always right. Whether it's about ancient aliens or the historic Jesus, it's always right. A naive realist may say there definitely was another shooter on the grassy knoll on the assassination of JFK. Or... He might say there definitely was not a second shooter on the grassy knoll based on a movie that he saw about the assassination of JFK that starred his favorite movie star or was directed by his favorite movie director. The critical realist, here's where we move into a distinction, critical realist. By that I don't mean someone who's critical in a pharisaic sense, but one who thinks critically. The critical realist, if asked if she thought, I'm bringing she's into this, if she thought climate change was an existential threat, the critical realist would probably say something like this. I don't know. I would have to research the subject if they hadn't researched it. Or she might say, I don't know. I haven't read Professor Sadar's book where there's a balance on the science. Or she may say, I wouldn't be so quick to make that conclusion. There is other research and science that presents a more moderate position than that. The biblicist now comes along. Blessed is the biblicist who's also a critical realist. Because there's a lot of naive realists 
that go to the Bible. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. Because I believe it. It's a different kind of. It's called fetism. F-I-D-E-I-S-M. We might even get to that tonight. This is kind of a fun scenario here. Picking out different kinds of people. I'm going to get to the poet in a minute. The biblicist would probably at least be thinking thoughts like Jeremiah 33, 20 to 21. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night cease to come at their regular time, then also my covenant with my servant David may be broken so that he will not have a son reigning on his throne. You might be thinking that in combination with Second Chronicles 2.12, which says, Then Huram continued, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, endowed with discretion and understanding, who will build a house for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. I've chosen a couple of less obvious verses both of which, along with many others, strongly imply the permanence of the earth. Or this biblicist, well, she may be thinking about Colossians 1.17 or Hebrews 1.3 about the sustaining of the creation by the omnipotent power of the word of God. By Christ himself. Now I say the biblicist might be thinking these thoughts. But maybe not voicing them. Sometimes you'll have somebody say, why didn't you tell them that? And I'll tell you why I don't sometimes. Because I am thinking that but I don't present it. Maybe she doesn't voice what she's thinking from the Bible. Because she knows her naive friend is a skeptic when it comes to biblical revelation. So the biblicist bides her time rather than showing her pearl necklace to a swine. That's just a metaphor. Don't take it literally. I'm not calling her friend a pig just because she's a naive realist. I'm just saying pigs don't get what pearls are. Check this pearl out. And then the pig turns and tears you to pieces because it takes a good bite out of it, breaks a tooth, and says, that's not a pea, that's a something else. I don't appreciate that. So if it's a boar, you're going to have trouble. I went to the hospital and visited a Christian brother one time who was torn by a boar's tusk from his knee up to his groin. I don't know if he cast pearls before this swine, But it sure illustrated the point. Now let's consider the poet. Some of you are poetic. Some of you are poets. She is impressed by the view of the crescent moon. She's taken the same walk. She's more impressed by it in a different way than the more prosaic or pragmatic thinkers would ever consider, or if ever, rarely. She goes home and writes of the memory of seeing the moon. The nocturne sky flashed a sudden crooked smile. See the crescent moon? As I traversed the wooded path. She's on her way to a poem. She's a poet. Poetry and metaphor come from a sense of wonder. And listen, most of the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament were poets. So it's so funny when prosaic or pragmatic people try to interpret Hebrew poetry and think they've interpreted the Bible because they've studied the words of the Hebrew or the Aramaic or the Greek. Historical critical exegesis isn't enough. The poet has created a fresh metaphor. She creates a fresh metaphor. She sees that crescent moon. Maybe sometimes it's like perfectly like this. Sometimes it's kind of like the underside is a, and it does look like a crooked smile in the sky. It's poet. I was actually going to write a poem like that once. And 
The moon was a crooked smile. That's a metaphor. And that's a, that's a fresh metaphor. Our language is filled with dead metaphors. They were once creative metaphors that were poetic, but they came into the language and died there. At the end of the day, R.I.P. at the end of the day. But that's a fresh metaphor. That's called creativity, the highest thinking skill that God put inside of a human being. This poet has created a fresh metaphor, not a dead one that entered into the language and died to become a mere hackneyed or overused, that means, expression. Now let's say that 5,000 years passed since this woman put this poem, finished it, and put it into a strong box that could survive disaster. Let's say that Western civilization had become buried under a deep layer of ash and dirt while the earth remained. On a dig, can you dig it? An archaeologist discovers this fragment of a poem in a decorated strongbox. He passes the poem to linguistic experts who then translate it from the ancient North American English dialect to their current universal Esperanto. It's concluded through empirical research that the inhabitants of the 21st century North American continent, as it is then called or believed to be, that people believe the sky to be a person or a god. sometimes smiled propitiously on a person as a sign of blessing or perhaps smiled ironically on a person as a sign of cursing. The scientific conclusion, I'm doing air quotes, that's another way of speaking. Here's the conclusion. The 21st century inhabitants of this continent were primitive animists who personified aspects of the universe and worshipped them as gods. This is the scientist bobblehead. And you know what this illustrates? Another form of naive realism, concluding based on a tiny slice of empirical evidence. That a society distanced from one's own by a long stretch of time just simply had to be primitive and therefore somehow inferior to the present sophisticated society. Don't we assume that about ancient societies? Call them primitive. And what we mean is inferior to our own present enlightened, technologically advanced society bobblehead so one can see how naive realism listen carefully because we studied Romans all about this one can see how naive realism as a way of thinking and reasoning can link up with biases of various kinds including group bias which prematurely judges one own one's own present society to be superior to societies of the past naive realism is alive and well, to use a dead metaphor, in academia today, academics. Naive realism is one of many examples of a method, or really a lack of method, that is contrary to a normative, attentive, intelligent, rational, and responsible method of getting at the real And therefore, the true. Let's go back to last week's dialectic. If you were here, if you weren't, it's in print and it'll be, it's on the website, it's everywhere. What if someone simply read Joseph Thayer's lexicon and concluded just upon reading, in essence, 
that Jesus is called the Son of God only by virtue of his incarnation and not by eternal generation of the Father, which he called the so-called orthodox position. The naive realist would read Thayer, assume his authority as a widely respected lexicographer, and then maybe conclude, well, that makes sense, which is a conclusion which itself unmasks a bias called common sense. Common sense bias. This conclusion would sink into the stream of consciousness of this person who accepts just on the basis of one reading of someone who he assumes has authority. It sinks into the texture of the stream of the consciousness in the form of an insight. If never questioned or investigated, this insight would never be in danger of being shown up to be in reality an oversight of the true insight that Jesus is called the Son of God based on the eternal generation of him by the eternal Father who is called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1.3. If the Son of God really is eternally generated by God the Father, then the light of the insight, so-called, that Jesus is only called the Son of God by virtue of his incarnation is really a scatosis. Pastor Brown taught on this. A scatosis is the darkening of an insight. It's really darkness. In other words, as Jesus said, that means that the light that is in this naive realist is actually darkness. If the light that is in you, he said, is darkness, and how great is that darkness? Because you still think it's light. There's people that think they have this enlightenment about an eternal damnation, eternal hell, where millions of people are going to go. That's an insight. It's an insight, all right, that is a scatosis, the blacking out of the true insight of the justice, the love, and the mercy and faithfulness of God. Luke 11.42, Matthew 23.23. And it's also the assumption, we know the parables, We know what Jesus meant when he said, you go into fire. We know what Jonah said when he said 40 days and this city is going to be destroyed. Well, then how come it wasn't? Something intervened between a message of judgment and the total conversion and salvation and repentance of the whole city of Nineveh. Something happened. After the parables were spoken by Jesus, an intervening event that made the prophecies of judgment not have to happen because the judge became the judged. Just a hint at what's coming. What if the naive realist was moved to ask, onset, wait a minute. <laughs> Is that really so that Jesus is only called the Son of God as the historical Christ? Or wait a minute, what about this orthodox view? What what does he mean, this orthodox view? Can it be true that Jesus is called the Son of God by virtue of his being eternally generated by the eternal Father? And he might even say, let me take that stance just for purposes of investigation rather than just take Thayer's view because Thayer said it or dear old Dr. So-and-so said it or dear old theologian Mr. So-and-so or pastor or reverend so-and-so or Pope so-and-so said it. That's naive realism. Or I could add my own name. Rick Knapp said it. That doesn't mean anything. And I could tell you all day long that I practice critical realism before I bring a verse to you or bring a teaching to you. You don't, but you'd have to check that out for yourself. So, let's say we take that stance, but let's not conclude prematurely that it's so just because we read it in a theology book by Bernard Lonergan. I'm going to show you what, show you what he said in a moment. Or in a creed developed by many thoughtful theologians, 
who battled it out dialectically in the course of history following the completion of the New Testament, say, like the Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. We have the same normative method interior to our human being as they did. We can ask questions that require reflection. We can amass evidence to add weight to our hypothesis. We can even come to a virtually unconditioned, and that means a virtually uncontested conclusion. As Jesus said, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to say anything against effectively or resist. You come to a conclusion. The gospel that I proclaim now, after 40 years of consideration and investigation and amassing of evidence, which I'm still amassing, has come to the place where I'm confident that it can be, it is impossible to contest it effectively. The universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. So listen. The orthodox position that Thayer called dismissively, so-called orthodox position, that will take, and it's expressed in one of the most important books I've ever read, is the triune God, colon, doctrines. Sound familiar? Romans, doctrines. The triune God, doctrines. He writes five theses. This is Bernard Lonergan who was a reformer within the Catholic Church rather than a reformer outside it like Luther. He, he, did, he issued what, if it, would follow, it had been followed, there would be a tremendous renewal in the Catholic Church, but he was dismissed. But Bernard Lonergan wrote this, Thesis 1 in Do- Theolo- Triune God Doctrine. It's sublime the way he put it. And he defines, once he does this, he defines every word later on in the past. I'm not going to do that tonight, but he said, God the Father neither made his own and only son, capital S-O-N, out of pre-existing matter, nor created him out of nothing, but from eternity generates him out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. That word consubstantial is actually taken into the vocabulary of the church, Catholic church and other churches. It's also, I think, even in the dictionary now. Of the same substance and essence, eternal essence. Again, I'll say it. God the Father neither made his own and only Son out of pre-existing matter, nor created him out of nothing, but from eternity generates him out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. Now we've passed into a theological functional specialty called doctrines now. Call this doctrinal thesis an insight. But then, even then, as sublimely worded as this is, I say, wait, is that so? The insight states plainly that the Son was eternally generated by the Father out of the Father's own substance and is consubstantial or is of the same essence and eternal substance with the Father. This, the meaning of this is clear then. The Son, a person is of the same eternal substance or essence of the Father and is therefore a divine person. The implication, again, of this is clear. God's own and only Son is called the Son of God precisely because he is eternally generated out of the Father's own eternal substance and is consubstantial with him. There is no mention in this insight or this thesis of the incarnation of the Son, although this too, the incarnation of the Son, is held to be true doctrine by those who hold this orthodox position. I happen to be one who does hold this position and holds the position that the eternally generated Son of God, the word that always was God and was with God became flesh. I taught that a little bit last week. So I have to ask this question. Are we arrogant to ask? And are you arrogant to ask? Is this so? Is it really so that the Son of God is eternally generated out of God the Father's own substance And that he is consubstantial with the Father. My answer to that, it is not. 
arrogant. If God indeed made human beings to wonder and to inquire, to receive insights, to reflect, to grasp, to come to judgments, which are the fruit of that reflection, then how can we say it's arrogant to ask? It is not arrogant if indeed God made human beings, as he did, to be attentive, intelligent, reasonable, responsible, and even imitators of God in love. In fact, not only is it not arrogant to ask, is this thesis so, but asking that question is what I call doing theology. We are using the method not of naive realism, but of critical realism. Critical realism acts in accordance with a normative human interior process, which is attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible. In a movement toward being in love, it's in a movement toward being in love, an imitation of God. In other words, it is a method headed toward living theology. Now, last gear. We've just done three. Here's four. Now, reflecting on that doctrinal thesis, I would begin to amass evidence. Let's say we begin to amass evidence in favor, in the favor of this. To answer, for example, the objection to this doctrine that Thayer gives, Jothe, that it's a position to be rejected in favor of the view that the Son of God is a title given only to the historical Christ. Now, to further define this class, because what we're doing is biblical theology. Hindus do theology. Buddhists do theology. Atheists do theology. Biblicists do theology. This is a biblical theology. But we can converse with all other theologies. That's the beauty of it. Because it's biblical theology, the evidence should be amassed primarily from the scriptures, which we regard as God-breathed and authoritative. In favor of this thesis, I began immediately to think of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. You can note that if you want. Or even if you're really quick... You can turn there. Micah 5.2 says this from a prophet, Micah. Bethlehem. Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you, Bethlehem, to be the ruler over Israel for me, says Yahweh. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity even. Now the word translated origin, this is where philology comes in. Philology is simply the study of words. Etymology is the study of the source of words, but you've got to go further than that and study the usage of the word in the time in which the word was employed by the Hebrew prophets. Was it a poetic usage? Was God being anthropomorphically defined as a metaphor to a human being, like the psychological analogy, etc.? So here's what I do from there. I wouldn't say, yep, he was eternally generated. Micah 5.2, God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. No. The word translated origin in the Holman Christian Standard Bible is the Hebrew matzah, M-O-T-S-A-A-H. And it means going or going forth. Now this may connote the idea of a procession, a going forth a begetting, a being begotten, a procession, a going forth. 
that is eternal. It seems at least at first glance, at first glance, or am I seeing a crescent moon in a picture window of an A-frame? At first glance, that this one who is to come from Bethlehem to be the ruler over Israel has an origin in eternity. Could it be? Could it be? Could it be? And so we'd have to clarify the word origin because origin kind of indicates a beginning, but it's not a temporal beginning. It's an eternal begetting. So he didn't, the father didn't even precede the son's existence in the begetting of him because in the begetting of the son, which was eternal, the son was being begotten, which was eternal. And the son and the father are eternal and they're of the same substance, the same love, the same justice, the same mercy, the same faithfulness. But I say at first glance for a reason. Steady attentiveness is required. Steady attentiveness is required. How do I know that from eternity is a good translation, for example? Many times the word aeonios doesn't mean forever. It can mean a lifetime. It can mean a long time. It can mean a fairly brief time. It can mean a time that seems like a long time to you. That's why a lot of people say, I'm in hell. It's called living on planet Earth. But, but here philology, P-H-I-L-O-L-O-G-Y, or the study of words comes in. You got to do that. Specifically, the study of their meaning in Hebrew or the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Here, then, etymology, E-T-Y-M-O-L-O-G-Y, which is the study of the origins of words, also comes in. Do the words employed really denote an origin in eternity of this one to come from Bethlehem? Is it referring to the child born in Bethlehem as the word what was eternal, was incarnated, and who arise from the dead to rule over Israel? I think so. But it's not enough just to say that. Does the one to come refer to an, an origin of the one to come deep in the past, in what is known as time immemorial, but nevertheless still in time? Or does going forth refer to an eternal procession of the coming one, from God or to a creation of or a making by God of the coming one in the very ancient past. By Micah 5.2 alone, we have not come to a virtually uncontested conclusion, you see, that the Son of God was eternally generated from the Father. I think it says so clearly, but we have to be steadily attentive. And there's much more that we have to amass or marshal as evidence. So, in fact, the coming one of Micah 5.2 is not even called the Son of God there. So we still got to do some other investigating. He's simply referred to as one whose origin was either from antiquity or eternity and was also born in a town called Bethlehem, and he's the one who will rule over Israel and the nations. Now, if we, ever, if we never read the Bible at all, and we read this verse as it was ornately painted on a placard in a person's house, it might intrigue us if we were a critical realist, we may even have entertained a sense of wonder at reading that. And wonder, if the philosophers were correct, is the beginning of inquiry. Just like the fear of the Lord, according to the Hebrew Bible, is the beginning of wisdom. Wonder is the beginning of questioning. Wonder is a good thing. Jesus said, I'm going to do a whole bunch more miracles for you Pharisees who hate me and want to kill me, John 5 and 18. I'm going to do a lot more wonderful things so that you may wonder. 
in 520. Because, you see, I'm out to save you in 534. Wonder is a good thing. You lose it, you've lost something more precious than a pearl of great price. Don't lose it. Don't lose your pure desire to know. That's one thing you do want to become a child like. As Paul said, in evil, be children. But in good, be grown-ups. So if we never read the Bible, we'd entertain a sense of wonder. And wonder if we were to conclude there... God said it through the prophet Micah. I believe it. That settles it. The Son of God was eternally generated and eternally proceeded from the Father. If we did that just based on that one verse and a superficial reading of it, we would be in the dangerous territory of the naive realist. And if you're ever in a debate, you'd be taken down because that's all you got. You got one round in a six-shooter. The Son of God was eternally generated and eternally proceeded from the Father based on that one verse. But this person is a called a fetist, F-I-D-E-I-S-T, from the word fidelity, from the word faith, and there's certainly... Nothing wrong with faith as the Bible describes it. We would be in the territory of the naive realist, concluding at first glance now, first glance, that our thesis of the Son's eternal generation from the Father is correct. But here's my quote. Here's a quote from me. Answers don't come to those who glance, but to those who gaze into the Word. That's kind of taken from James one twenty-five. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's a bumper sticker. It's a motto of a brand of naive realism called fetism, which makes one faith, one's faith the criterion, or the criteria, yeah, the criterion of reality. This person does not say, God said it, that settles it. He says, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. What settles it is, I believe it. Like the naive realist who settles on his empirical perception, he takes a stand on his empirical perception. The fetist, F-I-D-E-I-S-T, settles on his personal belief. but still a personal perception. Today, much rests on the notion of personal belief. I think you might know that to be true. Today, much rests on the notion of personal belief. You know, some people actually rest their justification on their personal belief. Uh-oh, cross-pollination, doctrine of justification. God justifies the ungodly. Uh-oh. Some rest their justification. Even their eternal salvation rests upon their personal belief. Whoa, that's a lot to rest on that little flimsy thing there, you know. The critical realist investigates deeper. And this might give you a hint of things to come on Sunday or in the future. He may even seek to discover a deeper meaning to the parables of Jesus than the one offered by popular tradition. Amen. Thank you, Father. We pray that tonight's oversimplification of these ideas of naive versus critical realism will inspire us to take on the method of critical realism because we have seen it to be in accord with the standard design that you've placed in the interior of human beings. And we thank you that we can investigate your word, we can do theology based on critical realism rather than naive realism, because as the scripture says in Psalm, 
19, 7. Your teaching is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of your of you, Father, is sure, and it makes the naive realist into a wise, critical realist. Do it for us, Father, just because you're God, the God of all grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.